Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. And here, we've got the second half of our episode on screening patients for hunger and food insecurity. Quick recap. Two guests from last time. Kristen Begelow-Talbert. From Bi-State Primary Care Association and... Katie Davis. From Hunger Free Vermont. And now they're joined by a third guest. My name is Christina Quinlan. I'm the Director of Operations at Islands Community Medical Services, Inc., which is located 16 miles off the coast of Rockland, Maine. It's not staticky because she's calling us from an unbridged island that's an hour and 15-minute ferry ride from shore. It's just the way the sound came through. We tried to fix it, but let's pretend like it's intentional to set the remote island ambiance. Okay, last time, Kristen and Katie talked us through why healthcare practices might want to screen their patients for food insecurity and what tools are available to do so. This time, we're looking at implementation. There are many challenges ahead. Here's Kristen with a summary. There's actually several components that have to happen to successfully implement a screening tool. So those different pieces are figuring out what the workflow is going to be, how they're going to fit it into the really tight visit within the patient, who's going to be screened, when they're going to be screened, and then what happens when they get a positive result. They also need to figure out how they're going to capture that information and store it so that they can then report on it or look it up for later use if they're doing population health management with that information. So there's a technical component, a workflow component, and then the resources component. They need to know what's available in their community and have those details ready to be able to supply them to a patient who needs that service. We'll take these challenges a bit at a time. First is the type of visit that triggers a screening. We discussed in the previous episode that sometimes these are done as part of enrollment in a specific program. If you want the broadest screening, it might be tied to an annual wellness visit. Although that relies on people coming in for their annual wellness visit, something that doesn't always happen, and especially not during COVID-19. Sometimes practices begin with a certain population, like pediatrics, where wellness visits are more frequently adhered to. Next is the challenge of time. There's not a lot of it. Here's Katie. In most visits, you have about 15 minutes to discuss a myriad of, of really important things. I think one of, the, one of the recommendations that I often make is to do the screen on paper. Um, so it's something that folks can fill out while they're waiting to come in. Or if you have something like my chart where you can send things ahead of time, I'm going to have folks fill them out there. I think that can help save some time. I think depending on the way that your practice is set up, there can be a variety of different options. If there's a family that has young kids, you know, you can refer them directly to Help Me Grow, um, which is affiliated with 2-1-1 in the Vermont Department of Health, and they can do the, the circle back with a provider. So if you don't have the ability, if you don't have case management um, in a robust way. I think establishing a workflow at your practice that actually works so it doesn't necessarily need to be um, the physician who's asking the questions. In some cases, it's the, the folks who are doing billing who know the most about what's happening with people. Um, in some cases, if you have any sort of case management that's happening, that might be the most appropriate way for that to happen. I think it really depends on taking a look at the way that the work is already divided up amongst the different players in your practice. In order to have this be effective, it needs to be sustained. Um, and so really 
taking the time to find a way to fit it into a workflow that is actually sustainable is really key. Dealing with time is a mix of who is asking the questions, when, and using what tools. It's important to remember that this topic of food insecurity is delicate. Ideally, we'd be living in a cozy British novel where someone pours tea and we sit around being companionable until we can approach difficult topics, fortified by Earl Grey and biscuits. In the absence of that, a next best option might be offering a degree of anonymity, completing the hunger screening without someone hanging over your shoulder. Here's Christina. It can be a little bit difficult with the standardized two-question survey, particularly because everybody knows everybody and there's some embarrassment and shame that goes with that. So how we combated that is that we had sort of vetted two programs, a check-in kiosk, which also can be done online. It can be done check-in by phone or smartphone. And so the screening will automatically pop up and send um, the answers to and input it in our EMR. And so what we've done is load the food, the two question food insecurity screening as a kiosk screening upon check-in. And we have patients now who are just going to start checking in by iPad or the actual kiosk. So Christina went with a digital fix tied to appointment check-ins. Note that she says it connects directly to the EMR, or electronic medical record, also called an EHR. We'll circle back to that later. For now, let's explore the fact that when COVID-19 hits, virtual connections are especially useful. We've moved a lot of services to telehealth. So screenings are a big one because we had seen our numbers sort of tank, particularly our annual depression screening, our expert screenings, our drug and alcohol use screenings. And so what we did, we have moved our screenings separate from the telehealth visit via telecommunication. So our, we target everyone who has not had an annual screening, but then we also target patients that are diagnosed or have been diagnosed. I'm going to hit pause because there's a couple of things to unpack. Here, Christina is looking at all screenings the health center needs to do, not just hunger, but a range of signs that intervention is needed. She's looking at her patients and finding who likely needs a screening. And she's providing that as its own service, decoupling it from the regular visit with a provider. This is different from the kiosk at check-in solution described before. Sometimes telehealth is painted with a broad brushstroke as taking the human element out of healthcare, removing that cup of tea moment. That isn't where this example is headed. As you'll see by the end of these examples, you can gain your efficiencies and have your personal connections too. By doing it via telehealth, there's more focus on the actual screening and it must be completed. Oftentimes when you go in for a developmental screening, say during a well-child visit, I'm a mother of three, I know this, I'm not even done with the questions and the pediatrician walks in. And so it's unclear to me as to whether or not that screening was a point of care decision-making tool. And then I'm not entirely sure if the pediatrician is looking at that after I leave and has identified something that I've put down and talked about that with me. So there's an unknown as to whether there's value in that screening being done or performed in that way. What I'm seeing now is sort of a virtual check-in or pre-visit planning that's around that visit and making sure that visit has the most value. 
Everyone who listened to our season two series on telehealth might guess that Christina and I then quickly went down a rabbit hole about patient acceptance of splitting the visit up and introducing a virtual pre-visit, and is she monitoring what people think of that pre-visit? And yes, we went down that rabbit hole. Yes, she's monitoring. Yes, patients like it. They really like it. The other thing that the remote screening does is to not only free up options for which staff at the health center can perform the screening, it also expands their options for who they can hire for the job. Succeeding at this work is a combination of training and personality, and it's critical to get the right match. I think we're going to battle food insecurities by improving resource management and recruiting. Finding experienced medical assistance providers, especially mental health providers, psychiatry, but I want to back it up to the food insecurities and talk about plain old grassroots movements and outreach. Who can we get to do this work? It is, it is difficult to train somebody on outreach because they have to speak well, be comfortable, be a go-getter. Their ultimate job is to remove barriers and doors can be shut in your face and it can be frustrating. You want to help these patients, but you don't know how. You need to find those people, the people that won't say no. And we can do that with expanding our pool. I just hired our very first telecommuting patient outreach navigator. We got 157 applicants. I mean, that's crazy. With experience, her sole job is to remove barriers, navigate patients, not only through the, the healthcare platform, and then on the, uh, in tandem, linked to community resources. This new coordinator, using a remote platform, is connecting with patients on a schedule that works for those patients. And they're connecting away from the office environment on a more neutral, if virtual, middle ground. So now our patients are having a heightened sense of autonomy. They don't know this person, they don't have to see this person, but they're gonna talk to this person, they're gonna develop a relationship that way so that they can not be shameful about saying, you know, it has been difficult finding food or the food pantries have been closed. It's shortened hours. They may identify through conversations. So, so having conversations that may identify hunger issues. I mean, you don't want somebody knocking on your door, judging you. What's the best way to do that? Telecommunications and having conversations, helping them in one way and identifying that there's a food insecurity in another and having the right resource that can identify that and have those comfortable conversations. Okay, so now we have some fancy variations on a basic workflow for hunger screening. To remind us of the starting point, we have this recap from Kristen of the systems in place pre-COVID-19. This does vary among health centers, but generally what happens is that the patients are asked these questions either verbally by an assigned uh, individual or on a piece of paper that they fill it out and then they hand it back and it's scored. Once the answers are determined, you know, if it's a positive screen, positive for food insecurity, then there's some follow-up that happens. Oftentimes they are referred to local food programs or sometimes the health centers have food programs within their own health center that they're able to kind of wrap those patients into. Now there's a step here that we glossed over earlier and I said we'd come back to it. And that's the step of putting the screening results into the health record in a structured way. This information isn't just about an individual provider refreshing their memory about a certain patient before an appointment. As we discussed in the first episode, we want to add data and analysis to this process. It's how we'll know what's working. 
Here's Katie on why we want a specific screening tool this common across practices. I think the concept of doing it in a formalized manner is really advantageous from a data perspective as well. If we're all using the same questions, then we can, you know, in an ideal future, we're analyzing data from within the medical record is maybe a little bit easier. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to, to really develop some creative solutions to address food insecurities that's happening either among different subsets of populations, either among different geographical areas. So really being able to look at that data at an aggregate level, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to, to really hone the strategies that we're trying to use to, to make sure that, that folks have the food that they need. Unfortunately, having a common tool is just a first step. Data often doesn't make it into a record where we can perform a broader analysis. A lot of health centers are doing food insecurity screening, but when we look at the data within their EMR, we can't tell. So it's really important to know that different EMRs work differently and will allow different things. Oftentimes, you have to do what's called building a customizable template in an EMR in order to get the data you want. However, not all EMRs allow this, or some EMRs make you pay a fee to have them build the template for you. There's a lot of nuances around this, around capturing the data, and a lot of variability around with EMR vendors around what they allow their customers to customize or not. So you could have a health center that's doing amazing food insecurity screening, getting really in-depth results, and it doesn't show up in their report from their EMR because their EMR doesn't allow for that kind of data input. There's another more pressing issue with this information gathering, which is that during COVID-19, we have economic disruption coupled with disruption to community support programs, which we expect to send food insecurity spiking upwards. At the same time, there's been a period of fewer people coming in to see healthcare providers for routine visits. Even if those visits are stabilizing now, we have months of lost time from the spring. Traditional hunger screening isn't designed to handle such swift, dramatic changes, not even when you augment it with virtual tools. That's where community-wide efforts come in. Christina already relied on regular community health needs assessments for problems common to her unique community. For example, the transportation requirements to get off-island to a WIC appointment she could reasonably assume affected most people. And so she developed systematic solutions to this barrier. She didn't need to relearn that it was a barrier for every individual patient. She's constantly building on that type of community-wide thinking as it relates to hunger in response to COVID-19. The other thing that we're looking at is not just household food insecurity um, assessments, but community food insecurities. And then how we're going to get the food to the, to the people, essentially. So right now, during the public health emergency, we've received a lot of funding for that. So we actually put an ad in our local wind, which is sort of the publication that we have. And so the medical center covers all taxi food delivery. And then we also have healthy food choices vouchers that we are able to give to all of our patients. So any patient that wants to place an order under that program can, and then the food gets delivered to them. We also have amazing volunteer programs, our Meals on Wheels. For example, it's one day a week, but when we ran, say, there was a, like a drive, a donation drive for a particular EMS person, 
that was injured. And so we were doing lobster dinners. So instead of people just purchasing the lobster dinners for themselves, they purchased lobsters for Meals on Wheels. So they got 52 people got fed with lobster dinners. So there's a lot of innovation that, that we can do. And then of course, our community lends itself to be able to help and see that. But we do have other health centers in Maynard that are doing some pretty cool things. We have Hometown Health. They kill it with a food truck, with a healthy food truck, you know, in pop-up areas where they can identify zip codes, commonality in zip codes that have also answered positively to the screening tubes that they do have food insecurity. So you can target your population that way. Which brings us back to where we ended the first part of this two-part episode. Individual screening needs to happen alongside community-based efforts. It can't succeed on its own. And since most of our episodes focus on cool things happening in Vermont, it seems only right to leave this episode with some ideas from Maine. If you want to learn more about examples of work happening to address food insecurity as part of healthcare closer to home, then you'll have to tune in for our next episodes of the Policy in Plainer English podcast.